I'm kind of angling it for other people who read the website who haven't either. So I apologise for that in advance. So it's okay. There's so, you're the, most people on the planet are the same. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I thought. You see, I thought it would lend it to kind of a, a yeah a useful angle. So um, so for people who are unfamiliar with your work on sacred economics. What is it? How would you how would you describe it to people? What's the the main thrust of it? I'd say the main thrust is to the book is about how to make money as sacred as everything else in the universe. And I don't know. Some people think, well, you know, everything's sacred, and it should be. But if there's anything that isn't sacred today, it's money, and we experience that in our in our daily lives. Um, just you know, making personal decisions. Like for me, at least, um, my impulse is to generosity or to follow my passion or to do something right, even though it takes much longer. Like money seems to block these impulses and to reward the things that I really don't want to do, um, the things that, that are maybe hurting the planet, but that might be convenient or the things that, I, that my rational mind calculates will be better for my self-interest, like money is on the side of those things, but not on the side of the beautiful things that I want to do. And then on the social level too, you know, I look into almost any problem, any terrible thing, like uh, the prison industrial complex, you know, or the war on drugs or deforestation, climate change. And I say, well, why is that happening? And then I take it down a few levels. It's always money. So, so if anything isn't sacred, it's money. And then the question is, well, why? Because money is just an agreement to, that gives value to symbols, really. Like they're just money, what is it? Like physically, it's just bits and computers. So we've created an agreement that aligns money with pretty much everything people would call evil. But why should we have agreed on that? So the book goes into the nature of that agreement uh, and describes what exactly it is about money that makes it into um, something unholy and then says, okay, well, what different agreements could we have that are aligned with the things that are becoming sacred to us today, like ecological healing, um, the preservation of indigenous cultures, uh, and, and just you know all the things that, that we're beginning to value today. And in a way, money, you could say money's always been sacred because... In the past, it's been aligned with growth, the growth of the human realm and the conquest of nature. And that was sacred to us 100 years ago. But it's not anymore. So money needs to change. And you, you use the term the gift economy a lot mm -hmm. uh, to describe, uh, as I understand it, what we need to be moving towards uh, instead. What does the gift economy look like for you? What does that, does that mean? Does it mean that we all just swap stuff? No, no. No. No, it's not about barter, actually. Uh, barter never, you know, economists have this fantasy that once upon a time people used barter and then money was more convenient, so they switched to money. But all along, we've been trying to maximize our self-interest and take advantage of somebody else and get the best deal. That's, that's a fantasy, a projection of the present onto the past. Um, but um, gift economy... For me, it means two things, actually. Um, one is the shrinkage of the money economy. 
so that a lot of things that, that are quantified uh, um, today and commodified and, and exchanged with money will re-enter the gift realm. So a lot of the stuff, like, like things like the care of children, uh, the preparation of food, to some extent, the building of houses, um, the creation of entertainment, all these things used to be part of a, a gift economy done mostly within families or small communities. And, and a lot of these things should be done by people who know you intimately. And they make life's a lot richer when, when your music is mostly something that you get together and sing rather than something you listen to on your iPod. Um, so that's part of it is the, is the shrinkage of the money realm. But it's also, like I'm not talking about the abolition of money. You know, I'm also talking about the, the, the um, uh, transformation of money so that it takes on more of the properties of gift. Uh, and, and so one of those would be that, that you no longer um, maintain wealth, status, and security by keeping a lot of it. Like in a gift culture, the more you gave, the richer you were. The more gen- like the wealthy person was the generous person. And another aspect of it would be um, to be a part of the circle of the gift, uh, as in ecology, you know, where the the uh, waste of any creature is the food for the next. And like obviously, I mean, this is not a new insight, but you know, human economy has to join the circle of ecology. And our money system has to encourage that. So that's that's the other main aspect of gift economics as applied to money. Because what seems to be happening in, in in society now is actually a lot of the things that, you, that, that you're talking about there in terms of um, the kind of the, the privatization of childcare and the kind of professionalization of childcare and of care for the elderly and. Uh, basically sort of picking up on all the kind of social um, uh, the sort of social interdependencies that we seem to just be losing all over the place because we become more and more selfish and, uh, and more run, running faster and faster just to sort of stand still mm-hmm. um, so is, is part of what you because at the moment it feels like um, People are too busy to look after their look after their aged relatives, and they don't have the time, and they probably don't really have the skills, and probably ultimately they mm-hmm. don't anymore actually have the empathy or the ability to put themselves to one side for a while and care for somebody who brought them into the world and cared for them for twenty five years or whatever. Yeah. So how do we start to kind of rebuild the 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 um, the altruism that needs to underpin uh, a shift like that? Yeah, I think um, there are many ways to rebuild it, and different people engage it on different levels. Like some people rebuild it by engaging it on the level of, of rebuilding empathy. Uh, it would be hopeless if it weren't for the fact that people are so miserable in that state of complete monetization. Uh, really, what's happened is they've been robbed. They've been robbed of their skills, they've been robbed of their humanity, they've been robbed of their empathy. Um, and that that robbery leaves us, and I'm including myself in this too, um, leaves us in pain and, and lonely and hurting. Uh, 
Um, and and that that pain is so omnipresent that we consider it normal. We consider it normal to hurt. Uh, that's why we get bored. You know, boredom is the, is, the, is the pain that comes from not having anything between you and yourself. And a primitive person wasn't bored. A primitive person was totally happy to literally watch the grass grow. Um, and animals are too. And, and, and so we have this, this need, this, this hunger, um, which we can temporarily assuage maybe by eating a lot or by buying things or you know, all of these other, all these other things. Um, but that, and that's addictive because it doesn't meet the real need. And at some point it creates a, a, a crisis on a personal level. And then of course, on the, on the collective level, we have the, the same crisis. And so when people reach that point of crisis where it stops working and the addictions stop working and life begins to fall apart, then they have access to, or openness to um, the recovery of empathy, the recovery of skills, uh, the recovery of the spirit of the gift and um, those are the moments that I look for in my interactions with people. And I think those are the, a lot of people who come to my work, you know, and, and the work of many people in this movement, they've kind of reached that point. Uh, so I think it's kind of a natural evolution of, of uh, uh, crisis, uh, breakdown and, and healing or rebirth or something like that. Um, I'm not sure if I exactly answered your question. But, no, that's good. But I think like, like, you know, like the kind of social economic activism is important, but I also think that things you might call spiritual, I don't really use that word much, but spiritual activism, mm-hmm. um, you know, that connect people to their aging parents, you know, or, or uh, bring forgiveness into relationships um, or non-judgment things like that. I think those are equally important mm-hmm. and maybe even more important, more foundational. And I think we, we're, people are recognizing this, that the economic crisis goes all the way to the bottom of the way we are, the way we, we relate in, in this culture, in this civilization. You know, it's, it's, it's not just an economic crisis. So Sharon Astick, do you know Sharon Astick who writes, she's a sort of blogger in the States who does a lot of stuff mm-hmm. about and transition and that kind of stuff. And she wrote this thing, this piece recently about all the stuff about, you know, we are the 99% saying, well, actually, uh, in the States, even the, even the bottom 2% are probably within the global 1% or something, you know, that actually all the sort of inequalities around mm-hmm. the world in the various ways. So how, what, what is enough and how do we determine what enough is? Hmm, well... I just want to say something first about that 2%. Mm. You know, it depends how you measure it. Economists measure it in terms of income. And I think that's really dangerous because to some extent, your income is a measure of how much you've left the gift economy um, and entered the money economy. So you could have a subsistence peasant somewhere who... um, 
still lives in community, maybe still lives in a place that's relatively unscathed by modernity. And, and he makes less than $2 a day, poor guy. But actually, he knows how to build his own house. And he and his community get together and build their own houses and grow their own food and make their own clothes and sing their own songs. And he might have a, a life that's richer than even the 1% in America. And I think that I mean, sometimes I get into conversations, you know, with commenters and things on my, on my essays, you know, that, that they're like, but how can you advocate degrowth when the third world masses need to be lifted out of poverty? And are we really lifting them out of poverty or are we creating a new kind of poverty that is actually to our advantage, or at least to our supposed advantage? Like, so I'm, I'm, I always want to be careful. Mm. You know, when, when we say, well, so-and-so is very poor, are we just projecting our own conception of wealth onto them and then improving them? And, well, you're developing and we're developed. Therefore, it's destination us. Mm. So, I'm, I'm, I, so I just wanted to kind of make that disclaimer yeah, first. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what was your question? <laughs> what, what's enough? What's enough? Because surely yeah. for everybody, enough is just slightly more than they, what they have. Yeah. Whatever level they're at. Yeah. No amount is enough. When, when money is substituting for the qualitative things that we're missing. So if, if what you really crave in your soul is to be serenaded by your lover, but all you have available is digital downloads, then no amount of those will be enough. Mm. You know, if what you really crave is to walk outside and know the name of every hill and to know the name of every bird song that you hear and to know the smell of the soil. But what you have available to you is a product. Then no matter how much product you buy, you're not gonna have enough. And this has been a problem with money for a long time. It was recognized even by the ancient Greeks one of the, uh, I, in my book, I quote one of the, uh, one of the um, ancient Greek playwrights. Uh, he was puzzled by it. He says, money, this is a strange thing. The man who has 30 drachmas wants 60. The man who has 60 wants 100. The, the, the wanting of it has no limit, which is different from the other things that men want. Wine, women, food. Of all of these things, we know satiety, but not money. Mm-hmm. Now, what is this? this thing. Um, and maybe you've seen that study where they, they, they took uh, people with a net worth of $25 million or more and asked them, are you financially secure? And the majority said no. And they said, well, how much would you need to be financially secure? And they all named a figure, like you said, about 25% more than they already had. 25 million, 50 million, 100 million, didn't matter. Mm-hmm. Because... Anything could happen, you know? Like, I could think of a scenario where your $50 million fortune becomes worthless. You know, the stock market could crash, you know, bond defaults, you know, medical emergency, and better make it $200 million. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, so in terms of what transition groups do, mm-hmm. I don't know how familiar you are with, sort of, with, with the transition movement. Or, uh, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, so, so a lot of the work 
that, that transition groups are doing at the moment is around the whole idea of, uh, of creating new economies in the place where they live. So here in Totnes, we're doing a lot of work around regenerating the local economy and sort of mapping how it works and looking at where the key opportunities to, to bring in new things are and how to kind of stimulate a new culture of entrepreneurs and, and this kind of thing. How, what would, what you bring to this, how might that help to inform the thinking and the approach that we would take for making the economy here more resilient? Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about that a lot and, and experimenting with it um, and running into some of the uh, the difficulties too. Um, one of the things, this might be kind of an indirect answer, but I'll get to it. Uh, one of the things that I was experimenting with was, was uh, gift circles um, where you get together with a group of people locally and uh, you, it's kind of like a more hands-on version of a time bank and a smaller scale version of a time bank where you go around the circle and everybody says something that they need. And then you go around again, everyone says something that they would like to give. And, and as you go around, someone says, well, I need uh, you know, a lawnmower. And then someone else says, oh, hey, I have an extra one in my garage. You know? and, and so these ties form uh, and needs can get met without money and, and bonds get created. Uh, but in the kind of upper middle class circles that, and it's not necessarily, but, but people from uh, a privileged background in general, uh, there's the sense that, well, we don't really need to be doing this because we could just buy this stuff. And so we're kind of doing it out of altruism or we're doing it out of idealism. And I think there's a lot in the local economy movement um, that, that mirrors that. Mm. Um, like you don't see people in the ghetto uh, becoming advocates for local economy. You know, you don't hear those voices very often. It's kind of being done out of this, out of this idealism. Mm. And that means that when people's idealism flags uh, and they they run up against the busyness of their lives and the, and the the pressure that and the, the stress you know that that's caused by being immersed in a money world. Then they kind of give up on it a little bit. So I think it takes a lot of work to build these new institutions and to build the new habits. Even a lot of it is just habit. Um, I think that one of the uh, mantras that I've been it's been going through my mind recently is peak oil won't save us. And more generally, I kind of distrust the idea that, well, we're going to have to make this transition. We're going to be forced to make this transition. I think that, that yeah, on the one hand, the old world is becoming less and less livable. Uh, but that there's still always a choice that we have to make, just like an alcoholic. You know, the, the state of alcoholism is becomes more and more intolerable, but you can always still choose to uh, keep drinking, to find some way. You know, maybe you've already lost your house, but you could break into your in-laws' place and steal the television, mm. right? You can always find some way to keep it going. 
but it's just at a higher and higher cost to your health, to your relationships. Um, and I think the same is true for our society. Uh, and so to bring it back to like the local economy movement, um, I do think that, that the impetus for the transition has to come from recognizing that it's just not true, that little voice that says, well, I don't really need this. Because one of the things that we need um, are, are, are these things that, that can't be measured, that are qualitative, and that can only be obtained through local relationships. That said, I'm a little suspicious of uh, attempts to build community just for the sake of community. <clears throat> I think that, that certainly one way community arises uh, is through people depending on each other to survive. But people who go to uh, intentional communities and say, okay, we're going to survive together, even though we don't really need to, there's something a little artificial about that. And I think that the other way to build community is to devote ourselves to a common purpose, to create something together. And that, um, I mean, there's a lot to be created together. Um, there are wetlands to be restored. There are incinerators to be stopped. Um, and any situation that brings people's gifts together toward a common purpose will create all the kinds of relationships that that um, transition wants to create. One of the things that's been interesting here was we run a project called Transition Streets, which was the idea that you get out on your street and you get together between six and ten households on your street, and then you meet seven times in each other's houses, and mm. the first week you look at energy, second week you look at water, food, transport, and then at the end of each week you sort of undertake to do certain things before you all meet up again. And on average, they have each household, there's about 680 households now in Totnes who've done that, and on average they cut their carbon by about one and a half tonnes a year save themselves five or six hundred pounds a year hmm. <clears throat> but actually all the people who've done it and there was a big qualitative study that was done about what was their experience of it what did they get out of it actually the by, by far the main thing they got out of it was meeting their neighbors community feeling more connected to mm -hmm. where they are the new relationships you know feeling part of that that they hadn't done before mm -hmm. and it was one of those big word cloud things created of all their answers and peak oil and climate change and economic didn't even register. It was all just neighbours, yeah. connected friendships. That, yeah. that, which I thought was really interesting in terms of often in the sort of peak oil climate change world, it's the idea that you need to sort of focus, the, address those issues head on, whereas actually you can, it's more effective almost to, it's a bit like when you go into a dark room and you're looking for your car keys you dropped on the floor and the light's not working. Yeah. If you look directly at them, you can't see them. But if you look to one side, you can kind of see them out. Uh-huh. The eye, you see better. You know? Yeah. So, you know, do we actually, with the gift economy, is it, might it be that we can actually address all the things that we're talking about in terms of peak oil and climate change, but just not actually explicitly, explicitly focusing on those things? But I think it's interesting, like in that, in the scenario, in the, what you described with the streets and the, uh, you know, looking at energy. Um, so, so the, the, the thing that, that they got out of it was the connection and the community and stuff. But if they had just gotten together 
in each of their houses and talked about those things and done nothing more than have conversations, mm. they probably wouldn't have had that yeah. sense of community. You know, So they have to actually have a sense that we're here to do something, mm. you know, not just to talk about it. Purpose. Yeah. And a lot of it, I don't know, maybe I'm cynical, but in the States at least, a lot of it is really, let's get together and talk about how right we are. <laughs> you know? Um, so I think it, there does have to be mm. actual, um, you know, something something like that. Um where, yeah. where, where there's actually a, uh, a ma- they're actually doing something that yeah. pushes them a bit yeah. creating yeah creating something <clears throat> together because when you create something then you're um, you have to kind of step aside because something other than yourself becomes paramount it's this thing you want to create mm-hmm. and and when you let go of that ego self then real connection is possible it's like if you've been in a band or on a sports team mm-hmm. you know and you feel like a much more authentic bond mm. with, I mean, that's what I experienced when I was, you know, on the track team in, in college, you know, a, a real, like, even if I didn't like some of the guys, you know, there was still um, a real bond because mm. we were dedicated to something greater than ourselves mm. together. So at the moment in Italy, for example, and Spain, you know, where the economy is, is going down the tubes very, very quickly and, there's youth unemployment of 50% and uh, lots of young people just sort of shell-shocked by the whole thing, mm-hmm. really, are wondering what do, we, what do we create out of this? What would your advice be to somebody who's 20 and living in Spain and finished college and wondering yeah. where on earth they go from here? Yeah, wow. I mean... <coughs> <laughs> My advice would be to take the opportunity to step into the gift. Um, in the old paradigm, employment was about how to make a living. And in the new paradigm, employment is about um, giving of your gifts. So when the old paradigm was still working and you could still find a job, it was more difficult to step out of it because you, know, you were getting this reward but today, even if you do your best to live in the old paradigm, you still don't get a job. So you might as well just reorient toward, toward what am I here to give? And that's really something that even if you have a job, that, that I mean, everybody wants to, to do something magnificent with their lives. You know, if people who have a job, they have that feeling, well, I wasn't put here on earth to do this. I wasn't put here on earth to, to sweep floors or wash dishes or or shift bits around. Um, if it's not something, if not, I'm not saying that any of those things are bad, but, but if it's like your career day in, day out, doing something that doesn't make your heart sing, then at some point, everybody I've ever met is gonna, gonna feel like, I was meant for something, something else, you know? And <clears throat> in the gift paradigm, in gift culture, you the gift, what you want to give comes first. And as Lewis Hyde puts it, you, know, you give out and, and you create an emptiness that draws gifts to you. And so they come after. And you don't really necessarily know how they'll come back to you. 
but your focus is on on giving. And so I think that that actually the unemployment situation kind of is giving us a little nudge to do that and to say, oh, well, okay, it's not working anyway, so I might as well focus on what I can give. I want to be useful at least. And I don't think that unemployment is really going to go away in a certain sense. I mean, this has been, you know, Marx talked about this, the, the classical economists talked about this, that, that technology makes us more and more productive. And, and in theory, we should be working less and less. Futurists were predicting that in 1800. The machine can do the work of a thousand men. Therefore, very soon, we will have to work a thousandth as hard. But instead, we decided to consume a thousand times more and work just as hard. Mm. And that choice is no longer available to us. So we're going to have to work less for money. And I think the world would be better off if we all worked less altogether. You know, like hunter-gatherers mm. who worked 20 hours a week. And isn't it funny that, that we have to work harder than they do with all this technology? And, and so, yeah, so I think that, that, I mean, there's so much stuff that needs to get done today. I mean, there's so much beautiful work out there. There, there are, I mean, more than we can do. The amount of healing that has to happen, mm-hmm. the lonely elderly people, the, the children who need love and attention. I mean, there's a lot of beautiful things that people could do with their unemployment but how do people how do people gift how do people gift that and pay the rent? Well, how do they pay the rent without gifting anything when they still can't find a job? They uh, they uh, take uh, um, welfare from the government. Yeah. One of the stipulations of which is that they don't do any other work. Yeah, but they can do volunteer work. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm all for taking welfare from the government. I think that's a great idea if you can manage it and to, you know, uh, jump through whatever uh, hoops you, you can, go through the motions, you know, and, and not take too much time. I mean, just as a practical matter, you mm-hmm. know, do, do, you know, do that in a perfunctory way and then spend your time doing things that are beautiful to you and don't feel guilty about it. Uh, one of the pieces of sacred economics is a basic income or a social dividend, it's called, where everybody should, where, you know, everyone gets a, a um, kind of a payment that covers very, very basic living expenses so that that work no longer becomes a matter of survival. You said just now about how um, that people should do the should do the thing which is Merkel, what word was she used? Should do the thing that's most sort of meaningful to them or most yeah. alive for them or whatever. Is there a distinction in sacred economics between something <coughs> uh, I suppose, you know, that there could be like if you have the time and it was like, you know, make the time to do the thing that, that most sort of is most meaningful to you or whatever. That, that there's some things which would be very like um, self-focused you know I'm going to uh, pursue my own spiritual blah 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 or I'm going to uh, I don't know you know something that's very much about yourself mm-hmm. or oh, then there's then there's that sort of more <coughs> altruistic motivation of I'm going to dedicate my time to 
to the service of others and to helping mm -hmm. others. Is, is there a distinction between those thing, two things for you? I think people go through phases. <clears throat> uh, like there is a time maybe to come inward, to turn inward, to lick your wounds, to uh, be alone. Um, but at some point, when someone's done that, then they naturally turn towards service. It's in our nature mm. to want to want to serve. Um, I believe that. Neoclassical economics doesn't believe that. They say that human beings, they're fundamentally motivated to maximize their self-interest. Mm. Um, and they draw from biology, which in the old paradigm said that our genes program us to maximize our reproductive self-interest. So basically, Rob, you know, if you could, you would just sit around and, and do nothing for society. That's what you really want to do. But you know that if you did that, you wouldn't make a living. <coughs> that's why you're active in, you know, that's why you've created this transition movement, you know, because, uh, because you're forced to. You're forced to contribute. Uh, otherwise, you would, wouldn't survive. Like, and I think that's ridiculous, you know. I mean, just try it. Like, go home and decide, oh, I'm just not going to do anything. Like, you're, it's going to be intolerable. You know, people naturally want to give and they want to, and, and it's just, a, so it is like a different view of human nature that it's based on. And, and so that's related to that. Like, just sitting, you know, and meditating. Um, well, what happens? Well, pretty soon you realize your interconnectedness with all beings and your inner beingness and, and you desire to, do actions that benefit all beings. It's mm -hmm. not like this really tough Bodhisattva vow, you know, that I'm going to have to sacrifice my bliss in order to serve other beings. It's just that you realize the unity. Mm -hmm. And everybody's experienced the joy, like even of, of, of giving. Like even if someone asks you for directions from out of town and they ask you for directions, they're like, yeah, you go down there, you know, and then you turn right and you turn left and they, there they, they walk off, you know, and you feel good. Mm -hmm. Where does that come from? <laughs> you never see them again. You don't get any benefits and nobody saw you so selflessly giving directions. Mm -hmm. You just feel good. Mm -hmm. the, uh, one of the questions that I asked, <coughs> I asked um, if people had any questions that I was going to see. So one of the questions was in a gift economy, I think if I can quite get where the gist was, but in, in the gift economy, <coughs> how do I get a piano? This question, you know, something, something that needs to be made by skilled yeah. people, someone else using using resources, and uh, but something which is on which people can express so beautifully and, and mm -hmm. creatively. Where do the pianos come? Sure, from? yeah, pianos, computers, all kinds of things. Um, yes, yeah, so people, people. That's just part of the misunderstanding that people think that I'm talking about a world without money. Um, and maybe someday money will have evolved to a point where we don't even recognize it as money. But basically, I think that there has to be some way to coordinate uh, human labor over vast social distances. Just like in a body, how, you, how if a cell needs something, it puts out a signaling molecule. And that molecule attracts the resources that it needs. So I think in the social body, money is one of those signaling molecules. That, that says, uh, you know, pianos are needed. Um, and the signal is that people are willing to pay for pianos. So pianos are needed. So if I am a craftsman, maybe, I'm a craftsman, and I'm wondering, you know, should I 
make a piano or I'm an entrepreneur and I want to do something. Um, I want to make things. You know, what should I make? Should I make pianos or should I make uh, pogo sticks? And maybe there's more money in the pianos. And that's maybe a signal from society that this is what we want. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a way, money already works like that. I mean, that's the, the theory of it. Uh, but it's that the problem is that it's become uh, divorced from things that people actually want and need. It's been corrupted. Uh, and I explain how that happened in the book with the way money's created, is interest-bearing debt. Mm-hmm. So, so it's not about eliminating money. It's about transforming its nature. For example, no longer creating it as interest-bearing debt. And is there is there a challenge in in with talking about sacred economics that our culture has sort of largely moved away from having a sense of the sacred that that, that, that we <coughs> that we're so surrounded by stuff which is banal and uh, fleeting and. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, based on the instant gratification of, of desires and the senses and stuff, that actually in our daily life we rarely encounter mm-hmm. anything. Or, I, you know, I suppose too often sacred was associated with a kind of with sort of formal religion, which has right. largely been sort of shunted out of the picture in, the, in many societies. <clears throat> so, where does for 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 a generation who've grown up? with largely no notion of sacred or not really exposed to that notion. How do we rediscover that? <clears throat> that That's related to the need for crisis and breakdown. Yeah, if someone has never experienced the sacred, then it's all theoretical and they won't know what it is they're missing from their lives. All they'll know is that they're hungry for something and they don't know what. And what does, what does it mean to you? I, when I speak about it, I, I try to invoke it through um, pointing out some of the experiences that, that give me a sense of the sacred um, and that give most people a sense of the sacred. And I think most people have experienced those moments. You know, it could be a moment in nature or um, with a child witnessing a birth or witnessing a death, you know, with a dying loved one. Um, those, those special moments where, uh, or maybe even like listening to a band play, and there's that moment where, of connection, where the band is really singing to you mm-hmm. somehow, and not just putting on a performance. Um, like, every, I think everyone's had these experiences where their real needs are being met. And at those moments, Shopping is the farthest thing from your mind. It seems absurd, you know. And 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 I'll say, wouldn't you like more of that? Or those moments of of just authentic, intimate communication with somebody. And and so I, I I'll, I'll invoke that, and I'll say something in your heart knows that that this is what life is supposed to be about, and this is 